0: We have, uh, we finished up last week in John 17, and you know, it's the greatest prayer in the Bible. It's the greatest, maybe the greatest prayer of all time, not to judge Jesus' prayers against each other. They're all great. But there's no higher prayer than the high priestly prayer, where he prayed for his, his own revelation, his own, you know, make me known. Then he prayed for the disciples and those who would believe through the disciples' witness even he prayed for us there, and last week we looked at the uh, conclusion being the marks, the identifiers of the church, and now we're moving into John 18. Now remember, John is not like the other gospels. The other gospels uh, really have a lot of commonality. They bring us, the, they bring the story in a similar way. John is dissimilar. His style is different. His prose is different. His uh, Everything about the way he phrases things is different. He's very theological in his argument. He turns to theology and he uses theological terms and he's very uh, methodical in presenting Christ or Jesus as the Christ. And John, because he is different, sheds a light on this event that's different than what Bruce read, and that's, that's why we have Bruce read the other account. We're actually way far more familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account than we are with John's account, mainly because there's three of them and one of John. But I believe John knew what they had written, he had read what they had written, and he was seeking to write under the inspiration of the Spirit of God a, diff- a little different picture of the account. It's the same story. But he's just going to turn it a different way, like a diamond. Jesus is like a diamond. He's like a pearl of great price, isn't he? That's what he called himself in his parable. And the diamond, as you turn it, you see light differently as it goes through different facets of that diamond. John's turning the diamond for us. He says, you see what these other men wrote? They were eyewitnesses. Their account is true, but let me... Turn the diamond just a little. You see that? You see that difference? You see that glimmer? John's point is to hold Christ up and to call all men to believe in Him. He does that from the very beginning. He closes his book saying, that's my whole purpose. I wrote all these words that you might know that He is the Son of God, and in knowing that, you might believe in Him for eternal life. That's what I want from you. That was his point. And so he's holding Jesus up in this passage again. He's saying, look at him. Look at him. Do you see that glimmer? Do you see that difference? He's contrasting with these other writers. So there's no contradiction. There's contrast. Don't ever mistake that in the scriptures. There's no contradiction. There is contrast. And so we have him here. Jesus, for all of his beauty, being led like a sheep before his shears and silent. The title of the message is Sovereign Servant. Sovereign Servant. Jesus Arrested and Tried. We can call it a trial. That's, that's I guess, one way to talk about it. It's really a circus. But what they put him through is a circus. It's a kangaroo court. It's a joke. Really. I mean... There's not an inch of integrity being displayed here. There's not a thread of justice being put on display for us in this trial. This is a mockery. This is laughable if it weren't so tragic. And so we have it here in John 18. We have this trial. And there's a question I want answered. I want you to answer it. I think I can't answer this question for you. I can give you things to help you answer. The Word of God gives you information and gives you light that you might see the answer but you have to answer have to be the one to answer the question and the question is simple who is jesus to you who is jesus to you it doesn't matter who he is in fact in history if he means nothing to you At the end of the day, when you're standing before the bench of God at judgment, you're going to see Jesus is real. He is a historical, verifiable fact. In matter of fact, he is the creator of all history. And on that day, there will be nobody who will say, Oh, he's a figment of imagination. He's not real. He's going to be standing there beside God. There's nobody that's going to deny his existence on that day, no matter how hard they deny it today. The problem is going to be that he's going to be nothing to them. So I'm asking you before that day so you can answer it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? And this account gives us the opportunity to see Jesus. And so we move into the account. And we're going to look at three points. Jesus is the sovereign Lord that controls even his arrest, trial, death, death. And his death sentence. He's the sovereign Lord. Now, if you wanted a simple outline, you could write down uh, three, about John 18 through 19, write down three words. Christ, circus, crucifixion. Christ, circus, crucifixion. That's how they're presented to us. Christ is presented. And then the circus goes on. I'm calling it a circus. like it's not like a trapeze act that we all ooh and ah over it's a circus like a train wreck going on in front of us that's what we're about to see is a train wreck and then the crucifixion and all three of those things John's giving us so that we can answer the question who is Christ to you Jesus is the sovereign lord in control even of his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. So we see here in the first verses, it's presented to us in verses one through three, that a whole cohort of soldiers comes out to arrest one man. I mean, think about that with me for a moment. Think about that. I mean, they're not even going after Jesse James, okay? And his gang. They're going after Jesus. The man's never carried a sword. Never, think about it. He's walking around with a bunch of fishermen, and they come out with six hundred soldiers, clubs, swords, armor. I mean, I see this Roman cohort. They're marching in in rank up the up the Mount of Olives, up the Kidron Valley, up into the Garden. It's laughable. It's one man. He doesn't even have a sword. You brought a whole army. What are they afraid of? Perhaps they know who he is. Perhaps they know who he is and they don't want you to know who he is. They're afraid of him because he's the sovereign Lord. He comes, they come up, maybe there's, I don't know, it says a cohort, 600 up to 600. It could have been less than that. Let's just make it less than that for argument's sake. 450 soldiers armed to the teeth coming after one man surrounded by fishermen. It's a strange sight, isn't it? Doesn't that strike you? It's to point out his sovereignty. John is holding Christ up. He's the sovereign Lord. Look how many people they brought when they wanted to put him on a fake trial. They knew they had no right to arrest him. They're afraid of him. That's why they brought all these people. Jesus doesn't let the mob take control. Jesus takes control of the mob. I mean, here they come. He's standing with his men. He's just been talking to them, Mark says. And Judas comes up, and it's dark. And there's lanterns and such, but it's dark. And there's got to be an identifying signal. But notice John doesn't even talk about that, does he? Look what it says. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. But there's nothing about the kiss on the cheek here because the emphasis is not Judas. The emphasis is Jesus, and he's in control. And so you can imagine the cohort up the mountain, Jesus standing with his men. He gets done telling them, this is about to be the fulfillment of all things right here. We're about to see it. Now he turns around, and here they come, Judas in the front. Judas steps forward, and before he can even kiss Jesus, or as he's kissing Jesus, Jesus asks a simple question. He takes charge. He is the sovereign Lord. Look what he asks here, this mob of people. He says, Whom do you seek? That's a simple question, isn't it? Who are you looking for? I think he's asking you the same question. Let's just boil it all down. You're a lost man, woman, child in this place today. Jesus is saying, whom are you looking for? Whom are you seeking? You're seeking me. I'm here. I'm not hidden. I'm visible. I'm a diamond. I stand out among the crowd. I'm not hiding myself from you. You look for me, you find me. Jesus doesn't run for cover. Jesus doesn't defend himself. He stands out from the crowd. I I envision from all the accounts Judas is coming forward. I would have stepped back, put men in front of me. Maybe Judas can't find me in the darkness. Jesus pushes them out of the way and walks to the front to greet Judas, his betrayer. And then he looks at everybody and says, whom are you seeking? Well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is crucial. I am. Not I am he. Notice the he is in italics. I disagree with Don Carson here. He's a brilliant man. Far be it from me to think I'm smarter than him. But he downplays this. I think it should be played up. He's using the term I am because that's the sovereign name of sovereign Jehovah in Exodus. He could have said, that's me. He could have said a lot of things. He chose that phrase, I am. And look at their response. They fall down. We were talking about his power. When he said it, they fall to the ground. A defensive posture. When you fought with shields and swords, you had to fall under your shield when you were under attack. If you didn't fall under the shield, it did you no good. They fall under the shield. You've seen the, the movie about the, uh, the, the Greeks and their defense of uh, the island chain there. I forgot the name of it. It just came to my mind. Uh, the 300. Is that it? Yeah, the 300. In the scene when they fall under the attack of the enemy, they make themselves into one shield to keep themselves. That's what happened here. They fall down at the force of his word and defense. He doesn't have a sword. They're not afraid of him because he's an armed and dangerous man. They're afraid of him because of who he is. He's the sovereign Lord in control of his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Who are you looking for? Jesus. I am. They fall back. The power of the word knocks them to their knees. And Jesus continues. He says then, when he answers, I am, and they fall down, notice, they fell back when he spoke. They are really in fulfillment of an Old Testament passage. Psalm 27, verse 2 says, When the evil one comes against me, his feet slip as he treads near and he falls to the ground. He's the sovereign Lord. John's going to great lengths to tell us who He is. He wants you to know who He is. He wants you to know Him personally. Jesus is the I Am of Exodus. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. There's no one like Him. There's no one beside Him. I don't know who you came looking for today. Maybe you came to please someone else. Maybe you came because you know you had nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're Coming to church hoping your March Madness team wins today. I don't know. Your bracket will hold together or something. I don't know why you're here. But there's a question that you need to answer. Who is Jesus to you? I'm not worried about my bracket. It's garbage. I just wilded it up last night and threw it away. Who picks Kansas to lose? I mean, Rubbish. If you came for that, you came for the wrong reason, but I'm glad you're here because there is a question you need to answer. There is a Lord you need to meet. You don't just need to know about Him. You need to know Him personally. And He's asking, I think, a very pertinent question. Who are you looking for? They're looking for Jesus, and they found Him. So we have there. This Jesus, but then there's this paragraph here, this end of the story that grabs me in verse nine he He said, "Let these people go if you're looking for me, look you, you can have me, but let these others go because he doesn't want not one word of the prophecies to be unfulfilled. He's keeping them to the very end. he doesn't want them taken. With him. He wants to go alone. He must go alone. And then he says, Simon Peter, John says, Simon Peter having a sword, which is interesting to me. He's been in the upper room. Tell me, these guys didn't know what was coming. He's been in the upper room with his friends, hearing the greatest teaching ever on the planet, hearing the greatest prayer ever on the planet, falling asleep because it's late at night, and the dudes packing a sword. I think he might have hung around Simon the Zealot a little long around the campfire. The problem with the Jews, the problem with the disciples, they're looking for a physical kingdom. And they want to usher it in. It's time. You know? Hey, he sees them fall back on the fence. Jesus has said who he is. And and Peter says, it's time to go. Out comes the sword. Lopping the ear off of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And Jesus then says... To him, Put your sword away. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? These are the words that sting me about who he is. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? What is that about? I think it's captured in Anne Cousins' hymn when she says, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our Lord, load was laid on thee. Thou stood in the sinner's stead. Didst bear all ill for me. A victim led. Thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. Death and the curse were in our cup. He said, shall I not drink the cup which my Father's given me? That was your cup. That was my cup. That was the cup of God's wrath. Jesus looks at Peter. Put your sword away, man. I've got to drink your cup. Shall I not drink it, Peter? Do you want to go that way? I must die in your place. The death and the curse were in our cup. O oh, Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Now blessings are given to me. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O oh Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There is not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Peter in defense of his Lord, believing the kingdom is here and it's a physical kingdom. He didn't understand it was a spiritual kingdom. He had missed the Old Testament. It's like many missed the Old Testament. He was looking for a kingdom on the earth. Jesus said, my kingdom, he's going to tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have took up swords with my fellow followers and we would have taken it by force. It's not about this world. It's about the eternal kingdom. Peter, though, pulls the sword Under his cloak. He's not lopping a man's ear off. He's trying to cut a man's head off. It's time to bring the kingdom in. And Jesus' reply is so gentle. As he's picking up the ear and putting it back on the head of Malchus, he says, Peter, put your sword up, son. The cup of God's wrath has been given to me. Shall I not drink it? At the Passover, the cup of God's wrath was present. And they were looking to let the Christ in, that he might drink it and that he might lift the cup of redemption to the King of Kings. For thousands of years, no one had been able to drink the cup. And now Jesus says, I'm going to drink it. Not some of it, not part of it, but every drop of it. Who is He to you? Are you still trying to muster up the strength to drink God's wrath so you can appease God and be saved? You're going to fail. You can't drink it. It will have you. It will consume you. He is a fiery God who will consume those who come on their own account. Are you still trying to earn your way to God? You're still adding to the cup. You're still in the position of laying debt against your account. You need to hear who Christ is. He's the one who was sovereign Lord in control of all things. And he took the cup from the table. And he drank it. He had just done it for them in the upper room. They were sitting around. Remember he says... There's a cup he's not going to drink, and there's a cup he is going to drink. He drank, he drank the cup of wrath. He didn't hide the fact that he's the Christ. He held it out for all to see that they might be saved. Who is he to you? You still choking on God's wrath, or have you submitted yourself to Christ and said, He drank it for me? Nothing but healing for me. He bore my burden. Jesus is the sovereign servant who would give his life as a substitute for many. And the scripture goes on here in this story. It goes from presenting him as the one who would drink the cup to this trial, this circus, as I've called it, this trial, mockery as it is. They took him, these band of soldiers, after tying him like he's going to try to escape, and they lead him to Annas. Now, John doesn't tell us this in his text, but here's the history in synopsis form. The Romans took over Jerusalem, and Annas was the high priest, and the Romans took him from power. But they left the role of high priest in his home. And every year, another male in his family took the role of high priest for one year. But Annas, in the Jewish mind, was the high priest. Now, this is important. Don't lose this fact. They're taking him to the home of the high priest. Who is Jesus? Who does Hebrews say Jesus is? The what? You say it, you're right, you're mouthing it. Say it. He's the high priest. They're taking him to the Jewish High priest, but he is the high priest. So he gets to his house. Here's Annas. They don't take him to Caiaphas, who was the high priest for one year. They took him to who they believed to be the high priest, by bloodline, by right. This is our high priest. We have a high priest. We don't need a priest. We sure don't want you to be our priest. Who are you looking for? They were looking for a king, not a priest. They believed they had a priest. Jesus wouldn't be their earthly king, so they rejected him as king and as priest. And here he stands in the home of the high priest. And the circus begins. (laughs) They led him there, and then it comes out, John's note. You see it in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, he had no idea what he was saying. What he meant to say, in his human words, what he said was, it's better that we kill Jesus, this insurrectionist, before the Romans come in here and stomp us all out like a bunch of ants. Kill him that we might live. But when he said that, he was fulfilling the prophecy that one would die for many. He was prophesying what Jesus would do, what kind of death he would die by. That's what John 12 tells us. It was actually prophecy. God was speaking through a lost man to tell them who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the sovereign Lord? Is he your high priest? Has he drank the cup of wrath so you might have the blessing? Or have you rejected him as king and priest and said, I'll go my own? I don't need a priest. I'm my own priest. That's our chant of the day. The Jews had a priest in the We have a priest in ourselves, so we think. It won't work. I don't know why you came, but I hope you can answer the question that He's the sovereign Lord, that He is the sovereign high priest. What does a high priest do? A high priest takes the offerings which are offered in the temple. The people killed these offerings in the outer court. But the writer of Hebrews says it does no good until the high priest takes the blood of that offering, which is caught in the bowl, and pours it over the mercy seat. All the lambs can die that want to die until the high priest takes the blood in the Holy of Holies and pours it over the mercy seat of God. There's no forgiveness of sin. That's what's about to happen. Jesus, the high priest, dressed in his robes of righteousness, is cutting his own throat, shedding his own blood at the hands of sinful men, filling up the bowl. Having drunk the goblet of wrath, he's filling up the bowl with blood. And at his death, he will pour it over the seat of heaven and say, It's finished, it's done. There's no more need for a sacrifice. Why don't we have an earthly temple? Because we have a heavenly temple. It's Jesus. Why don't we have a priest? Because we have Jesus, the high priest. Why don't we have a king? Because he is our king. Who is Jesus to you? Just some historical figure? Just some religious leader? Just a good man? A moral person? A philosopher? He's not any of those things. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. If you don't accept him that way, you have rejected him. You can't have him as a good man. You can't have him as a prophet. You can't have him as a priest only. He's got to be a king, a prophet, and a priest, or he's nothing to you. Who is he to you? Answer the question. Please answer the question today. Don't wait, don't linger. Caiaphas had prophesied that Christ would be the substitution for the people, and he is. I was uh, in the mode of disciplining Hannah Grace one night. She was about four or five, and this was several spankings in her life, and it didn't seem to be making a point with her. I had read in a Puritan journal of teaching substitution to children. She had done something. I don't even remember what she had done. She had disregarded something her mother said. She had disrespected her, spoke back. I don't know. She had violated. She was in sin. We went to the room and I read the charge. She agreed to it. I'm guilty. And I said, Well, you deserve punishment. Three licks, tears. She knew she was guilty. She knew she deserved it. And I handed her the belt. I turned over on the bed. I said, I'll take them. No. No, no. I I deserve it, Daddy. Yeah. I know. But I'll take it. No, you didn't do anything, Daddy. You didn't do anything wrong. No, it's okay, baby. I know. You spanked me. Dilemma. More tears. You don't deserve it. It's not about who deserves it. I'm willing to pay the price. I exacted the price. I'll pay the price. What I'm telling you is... If he's not your substitution, if he hasn't drank the cup for you, if he's not your priest, you got to take the wrath of God. It was his own wrath that he appeased. I can take a spanking from my daughter because she's my daughter. You can't take a spanking. It would be unjust if I said, if I just picked from the crowd, okay, Allison, Hannah Gray's sin, Allison, you come here, I'm going to give you the whipping. That would be unjust. I didn't do that. It would be unjust if I got Noah and said, Noah, you're going to suffer for your sister. Oh, there'd be some wailing going on at that point, right? (laughs) Whip her, you know. That's not what God did. God said the price for sin is death. And then he stepped down off the throne of glory and became humble in the flesh. Even the humble servant that would take on the death of the cross. He died your death. He took the stripes. He took the punishment. He bore the burden. He paid the price. Who is he to you? Just some historical figure? Just some fairy tale that people tell about in the good book? Or is he the one who took your place? It makes all the difference in the world when he took your place, when you see I deserved it and he took it and now I've received his blessings in my my eternal life. Do you see it? I hope you're better able to answer the question. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Jesus is the one who suffered as a servant, as a substitute on our behalf. Jesus spoke the truth. I mean, they take him to this trial and look what they do to him. They question him and he says, look, why are you asking me these questions in the dark in your home in private? I've answered these questions publicly in the temple. I haven't taught in, in any place but the synagogue and the temple. Ask the people what I said. So he says, the priest, is that Your answer. And we learn from Mark that yes, I am. I'm the Christ. Are you the Christ? Yeah, I'm the Christ. But in John's account, we don't get that exchange. We get the exchange here. Where Jesus tells him, I've told you already. You're not my sheep, is what he's saying. You can't understand it because you're not mine. Mine who are mine understand. They hear my voice. They come to me. But you can't come because you're not my sheep. And at that moment, someone... Struck him. I don't know if you've ever been slapped on the side of the face. I have. It's not a great experience. Ears begin to ring. Face begins to burn. The wrath is beginning to pour, be poured out. The sting on the jaw isn't gone. And Jesus looks and says... for what reason do you hit me? I've spoken the truth. If not, tell me. Where have I told a lie? They don't answer that. They don't want to try to answer that. The high priest now says, I can't deal with this priest. He's above me. I'll send him to the puppet, Caiaphas, put him on trial over there. He doesn't even answer it. There was no lie in his statement. He is the truth. He is the high priest. Finally, we see that Jesus is the sovereign servant who even saves a treasonous sinner. I I say that about Peter. I don't want to bang on Peter. That's easy to do, isn't it? Until you see yourself there. All the other disciples desert, and John who Mark says was disrobed, and Peter run to the high priest's home. John is Jesus' first cousin. John, the gospel writer, is Jesus' first cousin. They, uh, on their mother's side, are part of the Levitical priesthood. And John has nose, Annas. It's skin folk. He goes straight in. Peter can't go in. Stands outside. John lets him in. Here they are standing in the court. Jesus is right there. They can see him. He can see them. And someone says, Hey, you talk funny like a Galilean. Are you his disciple? No. Oh, no, 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 no not me. He goes and warms his hands by the fire. And one of the men says, Oh, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're one of his disciples. Not me. No. And then a member of the family says, Oh, no, I'm kin to Malchus. You cut his ear off. I know who you are. You're one of his disciples. No, adamantly, with cursing, I am not him. And the crow of the rooster. Taking him back to John 13, where Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. At that very moment, Luke records a very dramatic thing for us. When he denied the third time and the cock crowed, he looked up but to see Jesus looking at him. Not in shame. Not in disappointment. Not in surprise. But in love. The difference between Peter and Judas is razor thin. Peter is treasonous at this point. He has denied his king. And the king looks at him not in judgment, not in hatred, not in rebuke, not in discipline. He looks at him in love. Because Peter's salvation is not bound up in Peter being a good man, able to stand in the day of trial. Peter's salvation is bound up in the cup of wrath which Jesus will drink and then give him the cup of redemption. For years I read it as if Jesus was mad or disappointed. No, Jesus looked at him in pity, in love, and in forgiveness already. I, I'm going to die for that sin, son. Don't worry. That's a drop, a bitter drop in the wrath of God that I will consume so that you might live. Peter runs away in horror of his sin. And I want to close with that horror because of sin. You know, I just want to be personal with you, open with you. My testimony, I've told before, but my testimony is simple. I was raised in a Christian school, went to church every Sunday. And I believed myself to be a Christian. I really did. I I don't know if I was or wasn't now. I'm really hazy on that. Okay? But I spent my life ridiculing people like Peter. Because I thought I'm in. I won't ever deny him. Until finally, when I was about 18 years old, by myself in my dorm room with my Bible open, reading this passage, for the first time in my life, I saw, I'm Peter. This isn't a story just about Peter and his failure. This is a story about mankind's failure. You you could take it from any angle. David, the adulterer. Peter, the denier. See, when we read about Peter's denial, I'm afraid that many church, good church people, look at Peter and say, What a joke. Or they say, Oh, yeah, you know, he did deny him, but, you know, he's going to get saved here at the end. As if he's not saved already. And I'm telling you, he's saved. When he said, I don't know who this man is, he was a Christian. And that's where it applies to you and me. Because who are you looking for? And who is Jesus to you? Peter would have said he's my king. Peter would have said he's my priest. Peter would have said he's my prophet. Peter would have said he's the son of the living God. He already did it, didn't he? Peter is the elect. Peter is a Christian. And in the moment of testing, he failed. And some of you have failed. In your moment of testing, you failed, and it has sent you into a spiral. And you have said, I must not be a Christian. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm 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 in your frantic about earning your salvation back or proving your salvation back. And what I'm trying to tell you today is you can't because your salvation was not built on your ability to withstand temptation. Nor was it built and solidified on the fact that you would announce him in front of mankind perfectly without failure. But it was built on what he did for you. So some of you have denied him in your Christian life and now you've lived inactive in service to him for years because you're guilty. And you say, I'm not worthy. And I'm saying to you, the loving eyes of Jesus are on your heart saying, I paid for that. I absorbed that. I owned it. It is mine. You're free. Some of you are are more holy than God the way I was. You think you're better than even he is. He can forgive me, but I can't forgive me. And what I'm saying is repent even of that. Say, God, I am Peter. I have denied you. But, oh, my salvation is not on me. It's on you. It's on you. As I sat reading this passage this week, my mind was called back to that night in my dorm room. And I thanked God that His eyes were of love, not of judgment. His eyes were filled with mercy, not condemnation. His eyes were filled with acceptance of a sinner as a friend, not live up to the standard so I can love you. Jesus Christ... Who is he to you? Answer that question. Please answer that question in the affirmative. He is my sacrifice. He is my king. He is my priest. He is my temple. He is my all in all. I have nothing else but the blood of Christ. Nothing else but the blood of Christ. But I have the blood of Christ and in that I have it all. Let's pray. Father, you poured yourself out.